Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Yoni Zlotkin, product manager for spatial products at Waves. First of all, you've probably heard of TikTok. Sure you have by now. Maybe you haven't used it yourself, but you know that it has a big influence on popular music today, at least for the time being. TikTok is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And it looks like ByteDance is now going to come out with a new streaming service. This is aimed directly at Spotify, and they're going to initially bring it out in markets outside of China, at first in India and Indonesia, and then sooner or later, coming to the U.S. Now, ByteDance has a lot of dough, and right now they have a lot of juice because TikTok is so big. Over a billion active users and also responsible for a lot of action on the current billboard charts, or any charts for that matter. Now, here's the thing. It's easy enough to say that you're going to do a new streaming service, and it's easy enough to put it together, but what the really hard part is that keeps more companies from doing it is getting the licenses from the three major record labels. And actually, there's four if you count Merlin, which is the association for all of the indie labels around the world. It's very, very big right now and wields a lot of weight. So we have basically the four major record labels that don't like ByteDance too much these days. And the reason why is when TikTok first came out, the record labels sort of overlooked it. And then when it started to get traction, what happened was they granted ByteDance the licenses for TikTok. But What that means is an artist does not get paid per stream. No, it's a one-time license fee. So if there's something that's really big on TikTok and it plays a million times or a billion times, it doesn't matter. The artist makes the same thing. So you can be sure that the record labels are not going to make that mistake again. So here we are at ByteDance waiting to come out with a new service. And of course, needing, or at least so far, they think they need the major record labels various licenses. Now, I say they think they need it because perhaps in Asia, it might not matter that much. Anyway, there's a lot of discussion with the record labels to get these licenses right now, but it's actually turning around and going back on them because now the labels are threatening to pull their catalog off of TikTok if they don't get what they want. So this is going to be very interesting to see how it goes forward because it's going to tell us what the streaming landscape is going to be in 2020 and beyond. This is a canary in a coal mine, so to speak. So watch it carefully because this is telling us how streaming services are going to do business going forward. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowenercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about archiving. How long does a digital file last? Well, it depends how and where you save it. If you save it on a hard drive, 
It will probably last longer than five years, but probably less than 30 years. If you save it on a commercial CD, maybe you'll get 100 years out of it, but nobody really knows. If you save it on a recordable CD, a CDR, or a DVDR, well, guess what? Less than 10 years. What if you save it on magnetic tape? Well, for sure, it's going to be more than 10 years, but you know what? It'll probably be less than 100, depending on how the tapes are stored. So if you get 100 digital archivists in a room, you're probably going to get 100 different opinions on how to do this. And the whole idea is we want to archive whatever we're doing now, whatever's been done in the past, for future generations. Well, now comes something new, and it's a collaboration between Microsoft and Warner Brothers. They're archiving on a piece of glass about the size of a coaster. A laser encodes on the glass in three dimensions. It's called Project Silica. It can withstand hot water. It can be baked in an oven. It can be microwaved. It can be flooded, scoured, demagnetized. It's actually built for cloud computing archives. But Warner Brothers saw this and thought, wait a second, this might be a pretty good way to archive our really vast library at maybe the lowest cost. You can only write in this once, but that's okay. It's called cold data. You write it once and you archive it. But you know what? This might actually survive all the formats going forward. And of course, movie studios aren't concerned so much about what they have today. They're more concerned about old movies from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s and beyond. Those things are worth a lot of money, those catalogs. So, in fact, that's really important to them that they don't lose any of it. And as we've seen in recent fires and stories about throwing tapes away, accidentally destroying files, well, you know, if we store them on Project Silica, that might not be the case anymore. So keep an eye out for this because it might be the future of how we archive things. My guest today is Yoni Zlotkin, who turned some ambisonic and binaural college projects into a job as a product manager for what now has become Waves NX. He's now also a product manager for Waves' revolutionary Abbey Road Studio 3 plugin. During the interview, we spoke about the development of Abbey Road Studio 3, how the impulses of the room were taken, the evolution of real-time psychoacoustics, headphones in an immersive audio environment, and much more. I spoke with Yoni via Skype from his Waves offices in Israel. I want to go back to the beginning. I know that you studied psychoacoustics in college. When I looked at that, I thought, well, that's kind of unusual. Normally, that's not offered so much. What made you want to go in that direction? Okay, so so basically, I studied um, a sound engineering diploma at a college here in Israel. One or some of the subjects we were studying were psychoacoustics and reproduction systems, uh, as well as, you know, mixing and production. So it was a very uh, wide uh, syllabus uh, that we learned with very uh, talented and knowledgeable uh, teachers. Um, So... Basically, uh, we studied about uh, binaural and psychoacoustics and also some ambisonics and surround and things like that. And I, I, like, I, I took it to heart and, and, and became really like, interested in how uh, you could uh, combine 
ambisonics and binaural and, and basically like create this kind of um, 3D surround um, sound experience on headphones. Uh, it seemed to me like a very interesting and somewhat unfulfilled potential when I was back then in college. I, I was like thinking, hmm, why, how come Waves hasn't have this plugin yet? That's what I was thinking uh, when I studied ambisonics and binaural and how they could be uh, combined together. When you went to Waves, did you go specifically for that kind of a plugin? Yeah, um, when I approached Waves, I um, wrote to them and told them about like the projects I've done in my studies. It, it was a great timing because it was at exactly the time where, the, like, they've already started developing NX under the hood. It was in the R and D initial R and D stages, or not so initial. It was like an year, a year and a half into development. But right at that point, it was when uh, Gilad uh, actually uh, started to gain interest in that project. So it was kind of a low-key project in the R&D. Uh, and at some point, it reached a maturity level where, where Gilad Karen, Waze's CEO, has uh, become very interested in its potential. And right around that time, out of nowhere, I contacted Waves. Uh, and told them about what I was doing with ambisonics and binaural, things like that. And they just um, told me, hey, why won't you come over and give us a demo and show us what you're doing? Uh, and one thing led to another. I came in to do a demo. And a few weeks after, I, I got offered to to be a product manager for, for what is now NX. They didn't call it NX back then, but, you know, it already had, like, head tracking through the camera, uh, room emulation, binaural uh, effect going on. It was pretty crude at that point, but it had all the major building blocks in place. So I started working with Waves. Uh, took another close to two years till we released the first NX plugin, maybe a year and a half. Uh, just to, like, it took a lot of, refining of all the different elements to make sure everything sounds uh, pleasant and there's and like eliminate anything that was unpleasant in in different ways I was sent some of the early versions I go way back with Galad but I, I hadn't communicated with them in a really long time and out of the blue, he, he contacted me and said, I, I want you to hear this. And he sent me some of the early versions. It's come a long way to what it is now. Yeah, it, it did. Thank you. Especially when you now go to Abbey Road Studio 3, which is fantastic. I think that's one of the best plugins ever, really. It, wow. I don't understand why people haven't, why more people haven't been using this because it's really spectacular. So let's talk about that for a while. How long did it take to develop that? Because I know NX came first, and, and that's the, the basis of Studio 3. Okay, so the idea was floating around for a long time uh, to do a specific studio, but then it was, I think, January 2018 when we got the green light to go ahead and do Studio 3. Um, so then we immediately started like prototyping, 
to how like how can this be done and already around like february i was already there taking impulse response measurements uh using several different ambisonics and binaural microphones um and took that material back to the office and we started cooking we started cooking cooking started like mixing it all together trying to see how because it's like we had the nx we had the room sound but like figuring out how to combine them together in a way that sounds natural and like unified is is it's just one thing it took around a year and a half i think till the plugin actually came out it was when it came out it came out in july so yeah a bit, a bit more than a year and a half how was uh, abbey road studio 3 chosen I have to say, I understand from a marketing level, of course, you want something from Abbey Road because that, that's a uh, such a high bar, you know, that everybody wants to achieve. But th- th- that being said, uh, I'm curious because there's so many great sounding control rooms around the world. And Abbey Road Studio 3 is kind of unusual for the speakers that they use, the Quest Eds and BMWs and ATC Nearfields, which I've never seen that combination anywhere else. I think uh, think the decision was side because uh, we were asking for permission from them to do something in those lines, and I think initially they did not um, approve because I don't know there were some like business uh, reasons and like possible maybe they were thinking it might decrease the value of the actual studio or i don't know but when they agreed for us to do this they said uh you can do studio three and they actually uh selected the atcs because they know a lot of engineers who come into the studio like to work on them like they chose the speakers for what worked and what engineers uh liked to use so it was kind of there from the beginning. This is the studio. These are the speakers. Go ahead. We could have probably done a similar work in in a different studio. We 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 might eventually do um, something similar with with a different studio. Uh, I can't uh, know for sure now, but uh, it's definitely an uh, idea that's floating out there. When you took impulses of the room, you're taking ambisonic impulses, right? That's right. What were you using to to do that? The mindset was uh, we're going to do some trial and error. There's no like golden path. This is the first time we're doing this. So we used several different microphones and tested out which one of them would just sound the best and work out better. Uh, We used a uh, Soundfield SPS 200. We used an Ambio from Sennheiser. Uh, we tried a, a Neumann KU100 for a reference, and also we tried uh, just a few standard studio omnidirectional mic- like uh, cigar microphones. I can't recall specific model now. I think ev- eventually we used the impulses the impulses recorded recorded through the Ambio. They sounded the more most uh, natural when. It was all added up. That sort of makes sense because that's the newest microphone out of all those that you mentioned. So it's the latest technology, actually. Also, I think one advantage, uh, its capsules are closer apart. 
are, are closer apart to each other yeah. than the uh, the sound field one. The Ambio capsules are really tightly uh, put together, like they're they're large and then tightly put together. So I think that was an advantage of the Ambio. Also, we took the impulse responses, but then uh, we did post processing and manipulation of the raw impulse responses again to make it all fit together with the annex algorithms uh, so we experimented about how to orient the microphone how to decode the ambisonics impulse responses how to um, it, it, it's like the annex provides the dry directional part of the effect and then the impulse responses provide the surrounding ambient um, so we needed to find out how to just cut a bit of the initial part of the impulse response to make room for the dry part of annex which gives us a very sharp and precise direction so it took a lot of a lot of trying and error to to just make this sound natural. So, how many impulses would you have to do? I, I know that if you're you're tuning a room using impulses, then the more you do, the better the response will be. It must be the same with this, then, right? Okay, so so we we focused around the sweet spot, the listening position. That's where you record from, and then we took an impulse response from each speaker individually. So each speaker basically has four impulse responses that represents how the room reacts to that speaker from its position. So each speaker in its different position uh, reacts a bit differently uh, with the room. And when you listen to it, these subtle differences in reverb of each of the speakers add up to something that sounds real and natural because that's how we are used to experiencing speakers in rooms. Uh, they each have a bit of a different uh, response. Uh, also, the reason why we chose to use ambisonics impulse response is because it allows us to rotate. You know, ambisonics is, is very easily rotated. And when, when we do the head tracking, it, it was crucial that we also rotate the ambient uh, because although you can't really pinpoint the direction of the reflections, it somehow adds up to something that sounds right, sounds natural. So let's say if we'd have just recorded a binaural impulse response, we couldn't have eventually rotated it, right? Yes. That, that, that's, that's the reason why we uh, went for an ambisonic impulse response. What's amazing to me is that 10 years ago, if we would have talked about real-time head tracking and environmental movement with your head, it would have been fantasy. And here we are, it works and it's working in real time. It's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, in re I think in recent years, the uh, CPU power of our computers have risen significantly, uh, which opens, you know, new possibilities that 10 years ago were 
unimaginable. They they wouldn't have fit um, on on a CPU, um, let alone let you work in real time with an entire mix session going on. Um, and this increase in CPU power allows us to uh, go further um, and do more uh, demanding things of the CPU. What I find interesting here is this plays into the way people are making music today, where I get lots of engineers of all different age groups on podcasts that I speak with. And it's funny because the younger engineers basically say, yeah, I'll record in a hotel room because that's what my client wants me to do. And then they want me to mix and master it because it'll go online tomorrow. So if you're doing that in a hotel room or backstage or on a bus or something, you want an environment that you can listen to that's the same all the time. And that's why this is so important, I think, because you get a great environment that's always the same, no matter where you're at. Yeah, that's that's one of the key advantages, that it's so practical and, and easy to use. You just carry it with you. If you have a laptop and your trusted pair of headphones, uh, you're all set up to do some critical uh, listening and mixing decisions. And, and yeah, I, I think a lot of people work in headphones not out of out of their it it isn't their first choice. It's a necessity. It's a practical necessity that um, j- just how the music industry evolved um, and with all the home studios and you know um, getting a, a a good set of speakers in a good sounding room is a very high demand. It's not an easy thing to to come by. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons we got into this project and aimed it for uh, the pro audio market. You could have imagined that a project like NX, uh, initially it was thought of as a project for uh, the consumer audio market because, you know, we Waves have our uh, Max Audio suite where we incorporate uh, DSP algorithms on consumer electronic devices. So initially it was thought of as for consumer electronics, but once we started uh, working with it and thinking about who is going to use it and how it's going to be adopted, um, at a certain point it was decided that our first uh, target would be um, the pro audio market. And I think that also is what drove us to take this to uh, the highest standard we could possibly take it and invest the time and efforts to get there because pro audio users are very picky. Uh, they know what they like. They know what they hear. They know what they expect to hear when they tell when I tell them this is going to give you a stereo image, a speaker-like stereo image on headphones. They know what I'm talking about. And if it's not giving them that, they immediately say it. Um, so, so as you can imagine, in the process of developing this, um, many testers inside Waves and outside Waves and over and over again were evaluating this at different stages and always giving feedback. And by, like, you take a few actions, you see feedbacks being eliminated. Okay, I'm under the right track. You, and, and you keep going in, in small, small steps and small increments 
Well, speaking of, of headphones, you have some EQ settings for a number of the popular headphones that people would use. What I found was when I first tried it out, I was using my MX-50s without any EQ. And it sounded great to me. And I thought, well, why should I change? Because I like, like the way it sounds. But then I, I put the EQ in, and it was even better. <sighs> Although it was subtle. Right. It, it wasn't like a huge difference. It, w- it was subtle. How does the EQ come about, the compensation for the headphones? How do you do that? So with the next, we've always uh, considered that um, the headphones themselves, they sound good. And we don't want to uh, take away and change something to in, in a dramatical way so we aimed it to be to sound like perceptually neutral or transparent uh tonally so if you have your headphone is bright sounding and you're used to it you put an x over it it's still bright sounding if your headphone is boomy you put an x over it it's still the same kind of boomy so th- this is the reason why uh essentially it, it works good on m- almost all the headphones we've tried it on because uh, it in, in the first place, it preserves the original sound of the headphones and it comes across as kind of transparent and just adding the spatial element. Um, so, so as you said, you put it on your headphones, it sounds good. And then comes the EQ part, the headphone EQ part. So uh, with the headphone EQ, we've actually... Um, used headphone measurements done by a third party. We've collaborated with an existing headphone measurement database. Um, and we did quite a few um, testings around it to see how we can use the measurement to improve each headphone in a systematic way. Like we wanted, we wanted to have a recipe to take a measurement and, and derive a correction. Um, and eventually, eventually the results we got were that we better off just subtly um, correct extreme features we could identify in the measurement. So it wasn't like an all out, let's flatten the graph. Uh, we found it didn't work well all the time. So we took a gentler approach with that, um, but there might be m- more work to be done here in the future. Definitely adding more headphones. Yeah. The, well, there's quite a variety already, uh, and I think it's a, a nice selection of certainly the most used. I have a wide selection myself, and I think almost every one of them was on the list. Yeah, we, we definitely go went for the most popular, and obviously the ones we're going to add will be in the same lines. Like one that's obviously missing there is maybe the Biodynamic DT770, which is hugely popular, and we're getting requests for it all the time. Also maybe, you know, Sennheiser HD25, uh, also very popular and and still needs to be up there. Uh, as well as others, so HD 600 as well. Yes. So it works with without headphone EQ, um, considering you already know your headphones and are okay with their frequency balance, 
but then you can use the headphone cue to like smoothen out uh, the headphones sound even more to it, it like makes it a bit more neutral. Let's talk about immersive audio. Dolby Atmos, of course, is is coming on, especially with the announcement last week of being uh, available on Amazon Music HD, and the new iPhones have Dolby Atmos uh, as part of it. Uh, there's decoder in it. How does that work with uh, NX? Okay, so um, since Dolby Atmos on iPhone is isn't out yet, um, so there's still some unknowns um, on my side as to what it would actually be. Uh, but uh, taking, basing upon what I already know about Atmos, um, basically Atmos is, is the format, uh, but eventually this format is decoded into speaker feeds, you know, if, if you have a home surround system. Um, NX needs in the input uh, speaker feeds. Okay, mm-hmm. so considering it, if you could decode the Atmos coming out of Amazon HD into a 7.1 stream, you could then put NX over that 7.1 stream. NX, it, it's often confusing. Um, NX is not a format. It's it's actually speakers. It's, it's just replacing speakers. Um, it's not uh, a way to deliver channels and audio it's it's a way to to listen to playback audio it's so um it could work with any it could work with any object-based format providing we can get uh the speaker feeds um so currently nx supports up to 7.1 uh but it can pretty easily support more than that uh, and it's in a matter of implementation of specific applications. So it's definitely possible to to do that. I think what I'm curious about here is the overhead speakers, because um, Atmos at its base, I think, is 7.1.4. Right. So it's the, the overheads I'm curious about. Because that that's kind of what makes it all different in a way. Uh, you know, the object-based mixing and everything is, is one thing, but when you put those overheads in, it really makes for a different listening experience, I think. Yeah, so NX in its base can support um, overhead elevation speakers. Um, we still have not uh, released a software version that can get feed for elevation speakers but if you let's say if you use the head tracking mechanism and you tilt your head down the processing for elevation is already there um so we would probably um in the future uh provide for for these kinds of format as well, like 7.1.4 or... Well, it's interesting because now we're seeing this with a live concert format as well with the L Acoustics uh, Eliza system as well, Mm -hmm. where it's it's much the same. I was just out there actually, and I got a, a live demo at their Los Angeles factory. What was interesting was they had a room 
that was 23, uh, 18.1.5, 5-overhead speakers. Mm-hmm. And it was for front-of-house engineers to come in and get familiar with the system and, in some cases, to actually do their program all their scenes before they went actually they went into production. As we're talking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this would be a way actually for a front of house engineer to take that technology with them. And if you're on a plane and you're going to a gig, you can actually, you know, pre-program scenes and things like that as well, or, you know, do whatever you have to do in order to prepare. So this could work in a lot lot of different ways, actually. Definitely. So, yeah, you could imagine many different use cases for that. And like I've already heard from um, post-production houses where they get requirements for Atmos uh, mixing and Atmos mastering. Uh, and they're in short of Atmos rooms and they were being like asking whether th- this is possible as well for Atmos. Um, so I can't say we have any concrete um development around that at the moment uh, we're definitely looking out for it i i, I think it, it it probably boils down to um how many like the business case f- for it because if you consider most of our users of waves user base are mainly focused on on stereo um where we can sell you know we have thousands of clients for that, and with with the surround and especially beyond surround uh, solutions, um, our user there are less maybe less users um, for that, like in in terms of of, of volume. So we need it, it kind of it, once the business is there. <laughs> yeah. Um, We'll definitely cater for that, and and we can, and it's definitely possible. It's early yet for immersive audio. It's coming on strong. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. It's been in gaming for a long time now, and um, mm-hmm. now we're, we're seeing it everywhere else. I get it. it you know, it, certainly you can't build something if there's not a market for it. So I get that. It's, especially you know, Waves is a privately owned business. We need uh, good. Um, business justification for every project we do we we have no funding of any of any sort so okay last question yoni i'm going to change this last question up a little bit what's the best piece of music advice that you've received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way or audio advice maybe um one of uh my teachers and and in college, where where I le- learned sound, um, it, it was uh, a mixing. He he taught us a, a course course about mixing, and w- one of his main concepts uh, he taught us about was how uh, what you get going between two speakers is actually uh, a sound stage, and he he would uh, teach us to approach a mix by actually like planning on a piece of paper, drawing where we're going to position the different elements, you know, like the vocal in the center and the snare behind it. And then the guitars are spread apart and take taken a bit backwards. And, and, and the kick is up front and all these ideas of 
like spatial placement within a stereo mix. And, and, and once he taught me that and I started to think about um, stereo mixes in that way, I, I, I then realized that what I was having going on in headphones was different. And then when we were going on to develop NX, that what, that's what, what I was looking for to recreate on the headphones. So that concept, uh, which I was taught back in college, uh, I, I'm always thinking about it uh, in terms of like the stereo image, the positioning of sound and space around me, even in a stereo mix. Um, th this is actually an interesting point. I think it's a lot of the time it's overlooked, but in a way, a stereo mix, it's already uh, 3D audio in a way. Um, even though it's just two speakers, uh, you have elements positioned uh, in a kind of 3D space in front of you. It's defined by the width of the speakers, which is like 60 degrees in front of you, or even a bit beyond the speakers, but it's already a 3D mix. So it's like, let's say you want to take an instrument and put it in the back of the mix. So what would you do? Um, it's, it's the same in a stereo mix as it would be in a spatial audio mix over headphones. You would filter the high frequencies a bit. You would add a bit more reverb, uh, things like that. It's like people would ask me, where is the distance fader for Annex? Like they want a, a distance fader. And I, was, and I would answer sometimes, it's, it's the same as the distance fader in your stereo mix. What would you do in the stereo mix to get a sense of distance? It's the same thing when you approach uh, a spatial audio mix in headphones. Like another example of the same um, idea is if you record an acoustic guitar with a very close microphone, you play it and it would sound close because that's the source. Uh, if you put a microphone two meters away, it would sound far away, if it, even if you're listening it to it on a speaker that's close by. So like the sense of distance is a lot of the time dependent on the source itself and not specifically a spatial audio process you would imply over it. So all the basic ideas and workflows of standard stereo mixing also apply to spatial audio mixing over headphones. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.